It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 390 for April 27, 2014. This week, Adobe has a new vision for the future of photography, and it involves being a lot more mobile. I'll show you an exercise that improves a not-so-good photograph. And in short circuits, the FCC plans to save net neutrality by killing it. Netflix will raise streaming prices. The Supreme Court tries to figure out Aereo. Microsoft completes the Nokia deal. Facebook is cleared to grab Oculus VR. And by the way, don't forget to register for the Corel giveaway. Check the website. Lightroom, Adobe's profoundly useful photography workflow manager and editor, has gone mobile. Unfortunately for me, it's available only for Apple's iPad. The next device Apple has targeted is the iPhone. Only then will the portable version of Lightroom be ported to Android devices. Well, at least this gives me something to look forward to. And although I don't have an iPad, I've seen what can be done on an iPad, and I feel qualified to make a couple of observations. First, Adobe's developers knew better than to attempt to port all of the many features of the desktop version to a portable version. And second, the developers made an excellent choice in deciding which features should be included. As a result, Lightroom on an iPad gives the photographer flexibility to do things that were previously impossible, or all but impossible, in the field. In other words, this is a surprisingly rich, complete, and functional, portable application. Although I wish that Adobe had put Android devices first, I have to agree that picking just one platform and getting the interface right there is better than trying to develop for three platforms on two operating systems, and ending up with a muddle. All of this serves to further cement Lightroom as the premier application used by professional photographers and serious amateurs. Photoshop, even with the add-on bridge application, just doesn't work very well when photographers are trying to deal with dozens or hundreds of images from an event, something that Lightroom does with aplomb. What Photoshop does that Lightroom doesn't is pixel-level editing. Lightroom could, of course, be loaded on a tablet that runs the full version of Windows, but even tablets can be cumbersome in the field. Creating a more portable version of the application that will allow initial image review on a screen that's large enough for detail to be visible is going to be welcome, and the addition of touch-sensitive controls make it even better. The mobile edition of Lightroom allows viewing and limited editing of existing Lightroom collections on an iPad and it makes it possible to create new collections on the iPad that will then be synced right back to the desktop. The sync process is easy, but it does require that you upgrade to version 5.4 of Lightroom. The upgrade is free to any registered Lightroom 5 owner. Once the new version is installed, you can send a collection of photos to your iPad by right-clicking and selecting the option to sync the pictures. 
If you shoot raw images that are stored on your desktop and are 10 to 30 megabytes per image, sometimes larger, you might be wondering how those can be sent to an iPad. Well, the answer is they're not. Instead, the iPad gets lower resolution JPEG files. Changes made on the iPad are non-destructive, and information about the edits will be sent back to the desktop system so that they can be applied, if you wish, to the full resolution RAW files. There is one sticking point that might stop some people, and that is this. To use the portable version of Lightroom, you'll need to be a Creative Cloud subscriber. But Adobe has created a version of Creative Cloud that's designed for photographers and costs a lot less than the full Creative Cloud subscription. Photoshop Photography Program costs just $10 a month, and it includes Lightroom and Photoshop. But that's all. Compare that to Creative Cloud for individuals at $50 a month. You get all the applications, of course, and if you're a student or a teacher, the monthly fee is just $30. And then, of course, there's the Creative Cloud for Teams, which is $70 per month per person. You get all the applications and some additional features that are useful for Teams. But if you're a photographer and you don't need the web tools, you don't need the publishing tools, you don't need the design tools, $10 a month for Lightroom and Photoshop is a pretty good deal. Adobe product manager Tom Hogarty explained to me why the company has decided to provide these new, highly mobile tools. We're seeing a major shift in how photographers work and how mobile products integrate into their experience. And so this is another turning point or inflection point in the photography industry where I want to see Adobe go ahead and solve some of this fragmentation and create, again, a seamless solution uh, instead of just a desktop tool. And so what we want to do is move beyond just the desktop and kind of create a photography experience for you that's connected to all your devices. And once we do that, once we unlock it from your desktop, I think the, the possibilities are really unbounded. We could go to the web, we could go to different devices, we could go to set-top boxes on TVs. Once we unlock that uh, photography from your desktop, the possibilities are, are really endless and it's a really exciting moment for me. So to that end, our first step on this new journey is in to introduce Lightroom Mobile. What we're doing is uh, introducing an iOS app for iPad that lets you basically take some core essentials of Lightroom on the go. But it's always connected back to your desktop, so you always think of one environment for your photography that just works with itself instead of having to publish to one place and then re-import from another place. It's just one set of images. We're talking about you know, three categories of functionality. Uh, photographers have been looking to us for organizational tools to help manage our digital photography. Uh, they've been looking to us for image enhancements or image editing tools. Uh, and they also look to us for image sharing capabilities, so publishing to Facebook or web galleries or even just back to the traditional photographic print. So those three kind of categories, organization, editing, and sharing, uh, have been distilled uh, down to something just essential for the mobile environment. That's Tom Hogarty, product manager for Adobe. The 5.4 update does include support for a lot of new cameras and a lot of lenses. You'll find a long list on the TechBiter Worldwide website. There's also a list of bug fixes, but most of the bugs are so obscure that most people have probably never even seen them. The camera and lens support added to Lightroom are also automatically included in the current version of Adobe Camera Raw, too. That's version 8.4 now. 
So if you're interested in the new cameras, the new lenses, and the bugs, check out the TechBiter Worldwide website. I'm not going to bore you with them here on the podcast. In the old days, when photography involved film, I would sometimes take a look at a print and see an opportunity for improvement. I did my own black and white darkroom work, but most of the color work went to a lab in suburban Chicago. So generally, the next step, if I saw something that needed improvement, involved writing the instructions, sending the film to the lab, and waiting a week or two for the print to be returned. Digital photography has changed all that. On a Sunday morning in March, I was looking through some old pictures and found one with my favorite cat of all time, but it exhibited some serious problems. To start with, the color was lousy. The metadata told me that I took the image on the 11th of November 2006 with a Fuji Finepix S9100 camera. I used that camera as a backup to a Nikon D100 that I had at the time. The image was a JPEG instead of RAW, and it was obvious that in 2006, Fuji's automatic white balance technology was nothing to brag about. So this seemed like a good image to use as an example of what can be done, even if the original image is relatively low-quality JPEG with poor color balance. Be sure to check the TechBiner Worldwide website to see the images. You'll see small thumbnail images on the site. Just click any one of them and you'll see a larger image. It's not particularly obvious in the small image you'll see on the website, or even the larger image that you can view if you click the smaller image, but there's a lot of noise in the image, too. The Fuji's noise, even at a relatively low ISO of 800, really was unacceptable, at least by today's standards. I loaded the image in Adobe Lightroom 5 and used the automatic white balance tool to get the settings within the normal range. Automatic white balance depends on selecting something in the photograph that had a neutral color. Not black, not white, but anything that's gray. I found a sock in the picture, along the lower edge. It was black, but there's still some detail there, so photographically it's not black. Black would be zero red, zero green, zero blue, just as white would be 255 of all of those. Telling Lightroom to use the sock as the white balance improved the color a lot. Then I started to see what else I could do. I further refined the color in the hue settings, increased the contrast a bit, modified both the luminance and saturation of yellows and oranges. That made the image look a lot more like Tangerine did. The next step involved adding some linear filters to reduce the brightness of the background. What you'll probably notice most, though, is the eyes. The light was behind the cat. There was a window back there, or from directly above from a ceiling light. His eyes were way too dark. Lightroom 5 offers radial filters, and that allowed me to lighten the eyes and to increase the contrast a bit. Then it was time to start playing around with the image. After opening the modified image in Photoshop Creative Cloud, I applied a black and white adjustment layer, then used a mask to apply the black and white effect only to the background. Because I had already darkened the background, this effect is fairly subtle, but it further places emphasis on the subject of the image, which was, of course, the cat. That would have been a fine stopping point, but it was Sunday morning and I was looking for something a little different and just decided to play around some more. 
So then I applied a painting-like effect to the image using Alien Skins SnapArt 4. The current versions of Alien Skins applications work as freestanding applications or in conjunction with Photoshop Creative Cloud or Lightroom. If instead of a painterly effect I'd like to make the image look more like a photograph from the 1920s, I could use Alien Skins Exposure 5 to dial back the overall color and add a frame that replicates the look of damage that might have occurred during the past nine decades. The point of all this is simply to explain that even photos that are less than perfect can be converted to an image you'll enjoy. Learning how to use the tools does take some time, but there's no shortage of online tutorials. In short circuits, to save net neutrality, the Federal Communications Commission will apparently have to kill it. FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler proposes that the agency allow Internet service providers to offer a fast track to those companies that are willing to pay extra to deliver video and other streaming content to consumers. The new rule would at least force cable companies not to block content from other companies, but it would effectively stifle new companies that wouldn't be able to afford those premium fees at startup time. This may not represent a complete reversal in the FCC's policies, but Wheeler is portraying it as no change at all. The principle of net neutrality holds that Internet users should have equal ability to receive any content they choose, and that content providers should not be forced to pay a premium to deliver their service. That was once the FCC's rule, but a federal judge said the rules treated Internet service providers as public utilities, and that was in violation of the FCC's previous decision that ISPs would not be governed by the same rules as telephone companies or electric companies. So instead of modifying its previous decision to bring it in line with the principles of net neutrality, the agency has all but abandoned the principle. So a company such as Comcast, which will soon be by far the largest internet service provider following its acquisition of Time Warner, will be able to force providers such as Netflix, Google, or Amazon to pay a ransom if they want their media streams to be usable. Google, of course, owns YouTube. What the FCC doesn't seem to realize is that customers are already paying the ISPs for access and they're already paying, either directly or via advertisements, the content providers. The ISPs will have a new income stream, so obviously this means they're going to reduce prices to customers, right? What do you think? And of course, the content providers are going to have new expenses, so they'll just be nice guys and keep their prices right where they are, won't they? Again, what do you think? Wheeler's proposal is currently being reviewed by the other commissioners, and it is expected to come up for a vote at the Commission's May 15th meeting. Now, and speaking of rising prices, Netflix CEO Reed Hastings says the cost of the company's streaming video plan will increase by a dollar or two per month soon for new subscribers and eventually for all subscribers. The increase is being attributed to improvements in content selection 
and not to the company's agreement to pay for better service from Comcast. Current customers will be able to continue paying $8 per month for a generous time period, Hastings said. Uh, He did not bother to define what generous means. Would that mean one month, six months, a year, ten years? He was equally imprecise on the amount of the increase, characterizing it as one to two dollars per month, depending on the country. And he left the timing a bit open, too, just later this quarter sometime. About all we know for sure is that Netflix really, really needs the money. Why? Well, because its net income was $2.7 million last year, and now it's only $53.1 million. Wait a minute. That's nearly 20 times last year's net income. Revenues were up, too, 24% to $1.27 billion. Well, then clearly Netflix needs a price increase right now. Are you still trying to get your mind around Aereo? So am I. Aereo is the company that scoops up over-the-air television signals and delivers them to customers, but it does so in a unique way that seems to make it more like TiVo and less like a cable company. That distinction is important, and I wonder if the technologically challenged Supreme Court, not to call it the technologically inept Supreme Court, will be able to figure it out. Trouble is, I see merit to both sides of the argument. But then I've never really had a problem considering light to be both waves and particles, either. The 1992 Cable Television Consumer Protection and Competition Act requires that cable systems negotiate for retransmission consent from local broadcasters. In other words, they're required to pay local stations for permission to carry their signals. And actually, that's the part that I've never understood. Consider this with me for a moment, will you? Local stations make money by selling advertisements. When more people watch those advertisements, the stations can charge more for the ads. So why should cable companies that expand a local station's reach be required to pay when they give stations something the stations can sell? But let's move on. Individuals at home are allowed to receive and record over-the-air transmissions without running afoul of copyright law. Not that the television industry hasn't tried to make it illegal to record programs at home. Courts have held that as long as one person receives and records the material for personal use, it's legal. And that's where Aereo comes in. Each subscriber has an individual antenna which makes Aereo the equivalent of a home video recorder, the company says. But Aereo stores video on its servers and delivers it on demand to viewers, which makes it more like a cable company, broadcasters say. The money involved here is significant. Revenues from cable companies make up about 10% of stations' revenue, according to some sources. Currently, this makes no difference to me because I don't live in an area that's served by Aereo, or one that the company plans to offer service in any time soon. But it is a case that could have far-reaching effects on future technology. Unfortunately, the judges continue to be clueless when it comes to technology, 
Aereo works only with over-the-air signals, and Justice Antonin Scalia asked if Aereo would be able to collect programs from HBO. HBO is not on any broadcast channel anywhere. ABC, the American broadcasting company, is the party named in the lawsuit, which claims that Aereo will hurt the networks and local stations by limiting their ability to charge retransmission fees to cable systems. A loss for Aereo would put it out of business, but even a win wouldn't assure the company's success. Depending on how the justices write whatever decision they arrive at, there could be lots of unintended consequences. At midweek, Microsoft Executive Vice President Brad Smith announced that the company had completed the steps necessary to finalize its acquisition of the Nokia devices and services business. The transaction was completed on Friday. The process began several months ago and easily won regulatory approval. Smith says the acquisition will help Microsoft accelerate innovation and market adoption for Windows phones. Last September, Microsoft announced plans to acquire Nokia and about 32,000 of its employees. That includes about 18,000 who are involved in manufacturing devices. One small change in the plan affects 21 Nokia employees in China. They had been scheduled to stay with Nokia, but they are now included in the acquisition and will continue working on mobile phones. It's unclear why those specific 21 people were called out explicitly in Smith's announcement. Nokia will also transfer some of its patents to Microsoft, and former Nokia CEO Stephen Elop will be in charge of what's being called Microsoft's Devices Unit. Smith also noted other changes have been made to the agreement in the past several months. Specifically, Microsoft will manage the Nokia.com domain and social media sites and plans for Microsoft to acquire Nokia's Korean manufacturing facility have been dropped. U.S. regulators have approved Facebook's plans to buy Oculus VR for $2 billion. Approval came about 30 days after the deal was announced. Oculus makes the Rift a virtual reality headset. The deal wasn't expected to raise any objections, and both the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice quickly approved the deal. Facebook is paying for most of this purchase with stock. This is the first hardware acquisition for Facebook, but it has purchased several software developers, including the recent $19 billion purchase of WhatsApp. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.